Duggan, one of the assistant pastors here, and it's my pleasure to bring the word to you this morning from Matthew chapter 5, continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, where Jesus will turn to address the question of oaths. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study your word today, you would open it to us and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts as well, that we might hear what you are saying, hear this teaching of Jesus, and order our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Always check the fine print. That's good advice, isn't it? Although I'm not sure I always follow it. Why should you always check the fine print? Well, because you never know what kind of clause is hiding in the contract. For instance, uh, this is something I learned about the Apple media terms uh, this uh, week. This is probably something all of you are contractually bound to. You also agree that you will not use these products for any purposes prohibited by United States law, including, without limitation, the development, design, manufacture, or production of nuclear, missile, or chemical or biological weapons. So if you're rocking out to Apple Music while constructing a nuclear device, you should probably stop that. Uh, I learned of a story that happened actually right here in D.C. of about a furniture store, uh, and they had a guy who had bought furniture there for years, but he fell behind on the payments on his latest acquisition. And the furniture company showed up with a repossession truck, but due to a clause in the contract, contract they claimed they had the right to repossess every piece of furniture he'd bought there for the last five years, just because he fell late on the payment of one of them. Well, actually, the D.C. courts did not let the company get away with that. Uh, and, you know, recently we've also seen challenges to non-compete clauses in contracts. But why is it that we have contracts as a society in the first place? Why do we write these long documents that nobody actually reads? Well, it's an attempt to control human behavior, isn't it? It's, it's hard to get people to do what they say they're going to do. And so the whole edifice of contract law is an attempt to fix people's words in writing to such an extent that they cannot back out of their commitments. Well, Jesus today is addressing this same problem, the problem of holding people to their words. And as we look at this text today, I want us to see three points. Uh, first, I want us to understand the problem that Jesus is addressing, and that problem is that people are living at different levels of truthfulness. Second, I want us to see Jesus' solution, 
that we should pursue truth in all of our lives. And third, I want us to see that Jesus himself is the true yes. So three points. The problem that people are living at different levels of truthfulness. Jesus' solution, pursuing truth in our whole lives. And then finally, Jesus himself is the true yes. So the first point. What is the problem Jesus is addressing? Well, specifically, Jesus addresses the practice of swearing an oath. Verse 33, again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, just to start, what is an oath? Well, an oath is actually a curse we invoke on ourselves to guarantee the truthfulness of something we say. Let me repeat that. It's a curse that we invoke upon ourselves to guarantee the truthfulness of something we say. By voluntarily invoking the name of a god, people in the ancient world were calling that god in as the enforcer on the promise or contract that they were making if the oath was broken. The Egyptologist Jan Osman points out that in Israel's world, the gods were really part of the legal system. People from nations around Israel, they knew that human judges and kings sometimes got it wrong and couldn't enforce everything. But when the human justice system failed, they could turn to the gods. And so as we look at contracts uh, from the region, we find these lists of divine curses and the practice of swearing an oath in court. We should distinguish oaths from vows. They're easy to confuse, but they're different things. A vow is a promise you make to do something in the future. Um, and a vow can have an oath attached to it. You can seal your promise by invoking the name of a god, but you don't have to. You could just make the vow without an oath. On the other hand, sometimes you have oaths in situations that aren't vows at all. For instance, if you want to guarantee the truthfulness of your testimony in court, it was customary to make a witness take an oath that they were telling the truth. For our purposes, it's important to see that Jesus is really going after oaths here, not vows so much. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, one of the things that he commanded them to do was to swear by his name. They weren't to use the name of any other god or goddess, but only the Lord. And that was because they were supposed to worship God alone. And taking an oath was a form of worship. You were saying that you believed that this God had power to, uh, to judge and enforce justice. But while they were to swear by the name of the Lord, they were not to do so lightly. The third commandment states, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain. That means you're not supposed to swear by the Lord's name frivolously. So when they swore by the name of the Lord, they were supposed to mean it. I mean, technically, using the Lord's name meant you were saying that he had power to judge. But practically, if you used it frivolously, it was like you were saying that you didn't really think God was going to do anything. And so they were supposed to treat this name with a great deal of care. The name we translate the Lord in these passages is God's personal name, Yahweh. And 
The prohibition against misusing that name was taken so seriously in Jesus' time that many Jews avoided saying the name at all, even when they read the Bible, where it was written in many times. When Jews did take such oaths, they would use different names for God, like the Holy One. Um, And other Jewish teachers before Jesus taught that oath-taking should really be kept to a minimum. With Jesus' teaching, though, we can see a new problem that was showing up. People didn't want to refer to God directly in oaths because of the great and tremendous nature it was to invoke the name of God, so they were just using euphemisms instead. Do you know what a euphemism is? That's when you say a different word because you don't want to say the word you're thinking of. This is like when your company says, we're going to have downsizing, instead of saying, we're going to fire a ton of people. Heaven was a common euphemism for God. Or if that feels too close to saying God, you can flip it and say earth. Uh, Or you could use Jerusalem, a holy city. Maybe less dangerous than invoking God himself. The last one is the cleverest. You can even say, on my head be it. Without ever mentioning who is going to bring that judgment down on your head. We get a a window into Jesus' world here, and these sorts of oaths actually gave the rabbis a headache. A good bit of the rabbinic literature and the Mishnah and the Talmud is just discussion about whether these euphemistic oaths really bind you or not, and the rabbis actually mostly agree with Jesus. Saying it through a euphemism doesn't get you off the hook, but all the discussion about it shows that it was clearly a popular practice. We could sum up the problem here this way. People were living at different levels of truthfulness. They understood the Old Testament said that we shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain, so they set up different levels. If you're swearing by God himself at the top, if you do that, then you really need to tell the truth. Then there's these sort of euphemistic oaths. I'm making a promise, but I didn't use God's name, so if I have to back out of it, the consequences hopefully won't be that big. And then down at the bottom, well, if I don't swear an oath at all, then whether I actually do what I say doesn't really matter that much. Uh, The end result was actually that they were not caring that much about truthfulness when they weren't using an oath. This is a parallel problem to the ones Jesus has talked about before, isn't it? When the law said, don't murder, people heard that as, I guess hating people is okay so long as I don't kill them. When the law said, don't commit adultery, people heard that as, I can get away with lust. And when the law says, don't swear a false oath, People heard that as, if I don't swear an oath, then it doesn't really matter if I'm lying. They were using the letter of the law as an excuse to get away from the spirit of the law. They were actually taking a commandment which was about the importance of honesty and keeping our promises and turning it into an excuse to live most of their lives in a dishonest way. They didn't really have integrity. Their life was divided. Over here, when they're swearing, They'll tell the truth, but over here when they're not, they don't have to be honest. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your life. You know, it's usually not a good sign when you meet somebody who makes a lot of promises, is it? 
Imagine you're walking down the street and you overhear a guy talking on his cell phone. Babe, I swear, I swear, I didn't do it. That guy totally did it, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, okay, we don't know his situation, maybe not, but um, that would be your gut reaction. And why would that be? Well, because people have to add all of these assurances that they're telling the truth or constantly telling you I'm an honest person. They usually have to do that because they lie so much. They can't just tell you what the truth is and have you believe them. The dishonesty in their life means people won't believe them unless they sort of pump up all their claims with these extra assurances. Okay, so that's the problem. People are living at these different levels of honesty. Now, what's Jesus' remedy going to be? Second point. Jesus says to give up on all this swearing business. Instead, let your word be yes, yes, no, no. That, that's my literal translation. In uh, languages like Hebrew, you can repeat a word to say that you're talking about the real, genuine artifact. Actually, you can do this in English as well. Do you like him or do you like like him? That means something different, doesn't it? When Jesus says, yes, yes, he means a real yes. And when he says, no, no, he means a real no. Jesus is saying that if we say yes or no, then we need to really mean it. In other words, Jesus is calling us to pursue truth in all of our lives. Everything that we say should promote the truth. Part of what that means is that when we talk about people or situations, we have a high calling to represent them fairly and with a concern for justice. Sometimes that's going to mean speaking out because undue silence in a just cause is a sin. Sometimes that's going to mean holding our tongue or saying less than we could because we know we don't really know what we're talking about. Sometimes it means confronting and correcting others about untruth, although always doing so in love. But beyond how we deal with people's reputations and matters of facts, there's also how we deal with our promises and commitments. The word perform in verse 33 really focuses us on the act of promising, doesn't it? And definitely much of the oath-making that's grown up in human cultures over the years has to do with the problem of how to get humans to show up for each other. Aristotle said that humans are political animals. Another way to say that is we're highly dependent. We need other humans to survive. You know, I talked about modern contracts earlier, but in my line of work, I spend a lot of time reading ancient contracts. And one way to make that less boring is to realize that everything you see in contracts is reflecting human fears. Is my business partner just going to take the money and run, leaving me financially ruined? Is my political ally going to stab me in the back the moment I'm in a different city? Is this guy who's marrying our daughter going to mistreat her the moment he's away and she's under his roof? Is this person I'm adopting going to treat me badly when I'm old and weak? Every chance that humans get to make other humans put their commitments in writing and under divine oath, they will take. Because we know how human beings are. We promise all kinds of things and then we don't do them. 
We always have an excuse that makes sense to us as to why we do that. We offer help and then back out when the going gets tough. We promise our lovers will be true to them forever and then we leave. But Jesus is calling us to something very different. A kingdom where people keep their promises with each other. As simple as that sounds, what a world that would be to live in. A world where you could really rely on everyone's honesty. Notice that Jesus teaches us two words today, by the way. Not only yes, but also no. And in the context of promises, that's actually good practical advice. In order to keep faith with other human beings, we often need to say no. In his commentary, Dan Doriani tells a story about a boss he once had who said yes to his employees every time. And he deeply disappointed his employees because he couldn't actually follow through. There was no way he could keep his promises. I think especially in a modern world where we fill our schedules to the brim, this is a good point to apply. And when we, need, when we make commitments, we need to keep them. Suppose we RSVP to a party, just a simple example, and it's not that cool of a party. But then we hear about something else that we want to do instead. But instead of backing out, we'll have to say no to that fun thing and go do the thing we said we were going to attend. And that's just a small example, but how hard that can be to make that, keep that commitment sometimes, I think, shows how fickle our hearts are. We're always looking for something better. Let me challenge you today to take a look at your own life. All the commitments you've made to friends, to your spouse, to your children— to co-workers, your commitments to other members of this church? Has your yes been a real yes? Has your no been a real no? Might the Holy Spirit be showing you areas of your life this morning where you haven't lived up to the truthfulness Jesus calls us to here? Things that have to change. One more comment on this point. Um, what does Jesus' teaching here mean for vows and oaths in the Christian life? Um, I've already pointed out this passage isn't really about vows. We do find vows in the New Testament. Jesus himself, later in the gospel, is going to take a vow that he'll abstain from drinking alcohol until the day uh, he drinks it anew with his apostles. The book of Acts also records the Apostle Paul and his friends engaging in vows not to cut their hair, so it's clear that the New Testament church used vows as a form of religious devotion. That said, many Old Testament texts warn against frivolous vows, okay? So it's not just open season on vows. You could look at our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 23. You could also look at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 5. While vows have legitimate uses, we need to be careful with them. As Deuteronomy points out, if you don't vow, that's not a sin. Um, one time that it's particularly appropriate, though, to make vows might be solemn occasions where we're making serious commitments to other humans, commitments that we're sort of obligated to anyway. When you get married, if you just didn't make the vows, you wouldn't necessarily be less obligated to the commitments they embody. Maybe when you become a citizen of a country or when you join a church. Many, some of you have probably thought, didn't we just do a bunch of vows last week? <laughs> Are we going to talk about that? We had a bunch of new members. If you actually go back and look at the membership vows, though, 
you'll realize we're very careful not to promise too much. For instance, in our membership vows, we vow to endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ because we realize that sin is always with us and there will be times when we will fail. What is more, we actually don't put an oath formula in our vows. We don't say, as the Lord lives, or any other oath formula. So what about oaths? Is it ever okay to make oaths, or are they absolutely forbidden? I mean, that's certainly a plausible reading of what Jesus says here, don't swear at all. And some groups of Christians hold this view so strongly that even if commanded by a court to swear to tell the truth, they'll refuse to do so. But on the other hand, the Apostle Paul does swear the oaths in a, bi- a couple times in the Bible. One of those is actually 2 Corinthians 1, right after he references this teaching of Jesus. So there's some evidence that Jesus' apostles didn't think that there were no exceptions to this. As I was thinking about this, I found helpful some biblical commentators who said, you know, God himself actually swears oaths sometimes to confirm his covenant. You know, why would God do that? I mean, God doesn't lie, so why would he need to swear an oath to confirm what he's going to say? Hebrews 6 actually explores that question, and it says that God does it to assure us that he's going to do what he promised. God taking an oath is sort of uh, bending down to our level in a way we can understand to help our weak faith. Uh, And I think it could be the same thing for Christians. You know, we should be so honest that the thought of taking an oath is maybe a little bit ridiculous, because we always tell the truth. But I don't sure that all of us are that far along our path of sanctification. And even if we have got there, it may be helpful to our fellow humans to bind ourselves to an oath so that they can be assured that we're telling the truth. That seems to be when Paul takes these oaths. I like the way the commentator Matthew Henry puts it. We may be sworn, but we must not swear. So there may be exceptional cases where we could swear an oath, but perhaps we should avoid it. But after all, what is the point of Jesus' command to avoid swearing here? Uh, Not I think that the act of swearing an oath is inherently sinful. After all, God does it, right, multiple times in the Bible. But Jesus seems to focus on avoiding a habit that would prevent us from telling the truth and caring about honesty in all of our lives. If we imagine that I witnessed an injustice and I was ref- to refuse to give testimony against it just because I didn't want to take an oath, would that really be pursuing truth and justice in the way God has called us to? Um, I think not. So that's just to say I think there are some exceptions. Okay, so we should avoid swearing oaths and instead focus on pursuing truth in our whole lives. Last point. I want us to see that Jesus himself is the true yes. For this point, I want us to meditate a bit on how the Apostle Paul interprets this saying of Jesus. This is kind of a unique saying of Jesus to get to in the sermon because we actually have two apostles that interpret this saying, James and Paul. And so we can learn a bit about the Sermon on the Mount by reading it and what we're supposed to get out of it. I mean, obviously, the sermon gives us lots of practical ethical instruction for how we should live our lives, and that's what James seems to focus on. In James 5.12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Sounds like James is just pretty much repeating Jesus' ethical teaching here. 
But you know, one of the things that I've talked about with Ryan and Reed and some other people as we do this series is, how does the person of Jesus fit into his teaching? You know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you just stuck there, you definitely get the idea that Jesus is a great teacher, right? I mean, that's clear. And, and sometimes I think we de-emphasize Jesus' ethical teaching a bit too much. So I appreciate the fact that we're, going, we're sitting with Jesus' teaching a lot in this series. But if you keep reading to the end of Matthew, you know that Jesus isn't just a teacher. He's also God in the flesh who dies on the cross for our sins and is raised to new life. So how do we fit together Jesus as teacher and Jesus as Savior? Well, at least for my text, Paul makes the connection for us. Uh, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 1, he begins by defending the conduct of him and his friends, saying that he hasn't avoided visiting the Corinthians again out of any going back and forth on his part. Paul says he hasn't been making plans according to the flesh, saying yes and no at the same time. So he starts with sort of defending his conduct within the framework of Jesus' ethical teaching. But then he goes on to say that, really, the reason he and his companions have been constant in their promises is because God is faithful. You know, this is something Paul always likes to remind us of, right? That his, his sufficiency comes from God. It's because of God's work in him that he's able to do anything. And then Paul goes on to apply it to Jesus specifically. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 19, For the Son of God... Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. You see, this yes that Jesus calls us to, this promise-keeping, it's something that is from God in Christ. It's from God because God is the one who promises our redemption and who is unfailingly faithful to carry it out. And it's in Christ, the truth incarnate, because Jesus is the one on whom all God's promises focus. Jesus is the one in whom they all become true. And this shows us that as wonderful as Jesus' ethical teaching is, it's not something we can aspire to do independently from his person. Jesus is the one who's come to fulfill the law, as he said at the beginning of the sermon. The law is something that happens in Jesus. It's something that becomes true in him. And that means that he is the one who remains true to his promises, the one who carries out all of God's promises by his unwavering commitment to his call as God's servant. And to the extent that Paul is able to embody this faithfulness, to the extent that any of us are able to embody this faithfulness, to reflect the faithfulness of God in our relationships with each other, we are only able to do so in Christ. Paul's yes, the faithfulness of his gospel preaching, the reality of his commitment to them, which he's defending because people who bring, want to bring in another teaching are challenging it, this is only possible because of Jesus' yes coming first. So the same goes for us. Because we are in Christ, we are able to start to live out this yes in a new way. 
And that calls us to pursue this ethic in humble dependence on Jesus. It calls us to see our weakness and be honest about our sin and frequent failures. And it calls us to run to Jesus, to receive his mercy, to clothe ourselves in his perfect truthfulness, and to learn how to live trusting in him. Most of all, it shows us Jesus as the one who says yes to us. Do you hear your Savior speaking this yes to you today? Jesus, will you really be with me always, even in the middle middle of every trial? Yes. Jesus, have you really forgiven my sins? If I come to you, will you respond with mercy rather than condemnation? Yes. Jesus, will you really complete your work in me? By your Holy Spirit. When all is said and done, will the last word in my life be your word of blessing, not the word of my sin? Yes. This is a true yes that we can depend on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us in Christ, that you've given us Jesus so that we might know the truth and he might teach us how we ought to live and that he has lived it for us and died on the cross so that in him our lives can be made new. We thank you for this great gift and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would impress it more deeply on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.